New England Law Review's podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with the symposia guests. Hello, and welcome to the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Nicholas Baban, and I'm a third-year student here at New England Law Boston, and the executive online editor of the New England Law Review. For today's episode, we will be talking about the death penalty in America. I am joined today with Professor Nicole Noel of New England Law Boston. Welcome. Thank you. Before joining New England Law as a visiting professor of academic excellence, Professor Noel served as a professor of practice at Nova Southeastern University Shepherd Broad College of Law. At NSU, she taught legal skills and professionalism, a year-long skills-based 1L course training all incoming students in logical analysis, critical reading and writing, and professional identity formation. She also taught a semi-doctrinal skills-based course preparing 3L students for the multi-state bar exam. In addition to academic support courses, she also taught an upper-level death penalty workshop preparing students to litigate constitutional issues in the framework of Florida's death penalty regime. Prior to teaching, and at the heart of our discussion today, Professor Noel was a capital defense attorney representing death row inmates in their final appeals in state and federal court. As lead counsel, she conducted evidentiary hearings in state circuit courts, wrote motions and appellate briefs to state and federal courts, and certiorari petitions to the United States Supreme Court and conducted oral arguments in the Florida Supreme Court. She began her legal career as an assistant public defender in Miami. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. To start off, the history of the death penalty in America is quite extensive, and at one point it was even put on a moratorium throughout the entire country. Could you provide us with some of the historical points that are important to understanding the current status of the death penalty? Well, the modern death penalty era started with um, Furman versus Georgia in 1972, um, where the United States Supreme Court struck down the American death penalty and throughout the country as uh, violative of the Eighth Amendment as cruel and unusual punishment and uh, imposing a moratorium that would last for four years. What is a moratorium exactly? And is this any different than actual a repeal of the death penalty? Well, moratorium is just uh, suspending or delaying a legal activity without, uh, you know, voter consent or like a governor can just impose a moratorium. Where if it's abolished or repealed, that can be accomplished in several different ways. Legislatures can vote to repeal their state's death penalty statute. Voters can abolish it if it's a ballot initiative. Um, Courts can declare the death penalty statute unconstitutional, and then the legislature can either decide to rewrite it or not. So there are many different ways that, um, that the death penalty can be gotten rid of. <laughs> so, but yeah, a moratorium is just kind of a temporary suspension. Okay, and you mentioned Furman versus Georgia earlier and how that would cause them a moratorium on the death penalty throughout the United States. What were some of the factors that the court considered in that case, and why aren't they relevant today? Well, okay, so Furman came up to the court along with two other um, cases. One was a murder case and two were rape cases. 
And um, to understand Furman, I think it's, it's important to kind of think a little bit about the social landscape and the background surrounding um, that case. So it was after the civil rights movement, it happened, it's 1972. Um, Vietnam was going, there were concerns about the government exercising too much power. Um, there was a struggle between the court and Congress around who was going to control policy. And the court at that time was seen as activists. So, um, and there was a political movement around the increase in violent crime um, that was going on. So uh, it was a very volatile time and it's kind of a, um, the decision reflects that. Furman is a really fascinating opinion. It's a one paragraph opinion, basically, that strikes down the American death penalty. Uh, and then it goes on for another about 150 pages because each of the five justices in the majority wrote a separate opinion because everybody had something different to say. Um, so uh, one of the concerns that they discussed, they, they didn't find, it's, the important thing is that the court didn't find the death penalty itself unconstitutional. It was just the procedure that was being used. Um, so they kind of had an opportunity there to declare the death penalty just straight up unconstitutional on its face, um, but it really ended up being more as it was applied. Um, so the court discusses a lot of what the Eighth Amendment's ban against cruel and unusual punishment means. You know, where do we draw that meaning? Um, and Justice Douglas wrote that the Eighth Amendment must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. So um, really what the court was dealing with there is what does, what does that mean and how do we gauge that? How do we decide who deserves death and who doesn't? Um, part of the problem with the death penalty at that time was that um, there, was, there was single verdict kind of statutes. There were no bifurcated proceedings. So juries decided guilt and penalty together um, so there was no mechanism for um, addressing the sentence apart from the conviction. There was no opportunity to consider mercy um, and things like mitigation. And there were no instructions given to juries to decide how to impose sentence. So um, the question really was, how do we, how do we make this non-arbitrary? So that was in 1972. Mm -hmm. And a moratorium was stayed and the death penalty was unconstitutional at the time throughout the United States. What happened next? Because we have it now today. Right. So after that, I mean, it was um, after that states scrambled to rewrite their death penalty statutes and over 30 states rewrote their death penalty statutes. Um, and then four years later, as you might imagine, um, the next thing that happens is four years later, uh, a bunch of cases come back to the courts and um, to see whether they had gotten it right. Um, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Louisiana, and Georgia cases all came back up before the court and on the issue of the constitutionality of their newly minted death penalty statutes. Um, so what we got from Gregg versus Georgia, which was the case in 1976, was um, enumerated aggravating factors had to be weighed against mitigating factors so that the death penalty wasn't imposed in a quote arbitrary and capricious manner. So that was one of the things that they had really been concerned about in Furman. Um, Justice Stewart in Furman had written that the death sentences in those cases were cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning was cruel and unusual. So uh, in Greg, they came up with this um, paradigm where enumerated aggravating factors would be weighed against mitigators uh, to try to impose some kind of uh, system on how it would be decided. And so states came together, they 
created new procedures that the, they thought the court could accept or would accept. And the court ultimately did accept uh, some of these states' procedures. Now, were these stricter procedures, um, did, with these in mind, did it reduce the chances of arbitrary or discriminatory sentencing uh, in capital cases? Well, um, I would say no. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot more to it, um, but as the cases went on, um, the court kind of shaped or attempted to shape the death penalty in a way that would avoid arbitrariness. For example, in Woodson, Woodson versus North Carolina, uh, you know, the court then discusses, whereas in Gregg, they, um, they found constitutional Georgia's system of enumerated aggravators. Um, in Woodson, the court then addressed the need for mitigation to kind of balance the scale, right, to determine um, who's, you know, who's, who's deserving of death or how do we make that decision. So in Woodson, the court, um, the court said that the sentencing process has to consider the character and record of the individual offender and the circumstances of the, of the particular offense um, to determine whether um, that person deserves death. Um, <clears throat> but the problem was there still is arbitrariness due to so many factors, um, like prosecutorial decision-making, um, which cases would prosecutors seek the death penalty and which ones would they not seek it. Um, and that had to do with geography, even as, as random as that sounds, you know, um, a prosecutor in one county might decide to seek death on a case where a prosecutor in a neighboring county would not. So things like that kind of make it impossible to remove arbitrariness completely. Are you uh, aware of any specific instances of how arbitrary the death penalty is actually administered? Yes. Well, since 1976, the southern states have carried out 82% of executions, while the northeast has carried out less than 1%. Um, and 2% of counties are responsible for 52% of all executions since 1976 and 56% of the death row population. So I think those numbers definitely show that we have not eliminated the arbitrariness problem. Right. So an individual in the northern part of the United States is going to fare better than someone committing crime in the southern part. Yeah. And it even depends on what county you're in. Um, Maricopa County, Arizona had four times the number of pending death penalty cases per capita as other cities like Los Angeles or Houston. And the district attorney responsible for that was eventually disbarred for his overall misconduct. So so it really can vary not just state to state, but county to county. Do you think an overarching policy that um, if a state is going to have the death penalty, it must be administered evenly throughout the counties would solve something like that? Or That's an interesting question, but I think um, you know, prosecutorial discretion is very, very um, vast. You know, so prosecutors have the discretion to decide how they want to prosecute their cases. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, the, the head prosecutor in each county, you know, the district attorney makes the decisions about how and um, what cases to prosecute and how to do that. So I don't think that there's any way to, um, you know, to dictate how that should be done. And that's, I guess, at the will of the voters if, if those um, public servants are elected. You know, that's, that's one way in which that can change. Um, and that's one way that those evolving standards of decency can kind of um, be quantified.
kind of stemming from this idea that the death penalty is administered arbitrarily, are you aware of any situations where maybe a district attorney doesn't actually want to pursue death in a state that allows for it and the executive branch decides to um, take the role away from the DA and pursue the death um, according to his policy or her policy? Yeah, that I mean, that happened in Florida. Um, District Attorney Aramis Ayala, shortly after she was elected, um, she announced that her office would never seek the death penalty um, because it wasn't in the best interest of the community or in the best interest of justice, is what she said. Um, and that at that time, it was Governor Rick Scott. Um, his response was to remove her from 29 murder cases and reassign them to another county, um, uh, uh, State Attorney Brad King, who's an avid death penalty supporter. And actually, the Florida Supreme Court upheld that decision um, in 2017 and, and decided that Governor Scott had acted within the bounds of his authority by doing that. So ultimately, it's the legislator who holds the key to these kind of decisions in a certain state. I mean, it should, well, I guess it depends on the state and the politics of that state, because certainly, uh, you know, District Attorney Ayala had the discretion to decide whether or not to seek death, but that discretion was taken. To be sentenced to death, you must have been convicted of a capital crime. What types of crimes actually constitute a capital case? Okay, well, in Florida, where I practiced, um, there are enumerating factors, um, aggravating factors that have to be proven um, by the state in order for a person to become death eligible. And some of those aggravating factors include um, that it was committed for pecuniary gain, or the victim was a law enforcement officer, or um, the, the, the capital felony was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, or HAC, um, or whether it is um, to avoid or prevent a lawful arrest, um, cold calculated or premeditated, CCP. So one or more of these aggravators would have to be present in order for someone to even be death eligible. And then on the other side of the scale is mitigating factors. So um, and mitigating factors can be really anything in the, in the defendant's background that would um, mitigate a sentence of death. And, um, and as now the process is, the jury has to decide whether the aggravators sufficiently outweigh the mitigators in order for, uh, in order to impose a death sentence. Certainly more execute, uh, innocent people would be executed for one thing. And so many think that the death penalty has failed because of the, all the innocent people who have been freed, that have been exonerated of crimes later down the road and have sat on death row for some time. Why aren't these reversals signs that the system is actually working? Well, all that means, as far as I can see, is that there are more innocent people on death row and in prison who haven't been exonerated and maybe never will, particularly if their convictions are based on eyewitness or jailhouse informant testimony. Um, the Innocence Project mainly takes DNA cases because that's one of the only ways to definitively prove someone's innocence, and even then it takes years and years. Um, so 166 people have been exonerated since the death penalty was brought back in the 1970s, and Florida um, has the dubious honor of leading the way with 29 exonerations. Um, so I think all that shows is that there are more people in prisons who don't belong there. Mm -hmm. And for decades, 
studies have shown that the death penalty is discriminatory. We have the boldest study that was cited in McClensky versus Kemp mm -hmm. uh, that studied 2,000 death penalty cases and found wide disparages between uh, the administration of the death penalty for certain racial groups over others and certain racial uh, victims over others. Um, it is often used against the most vulnerable in society, including poor, ethnic, religious minorities, and people with mental disabilities, and where justice systems are flawed and unfair, trials rife, the risk of executing an innocent person is ever-present. What would need to change in America or the justice system for the abolition of the death penalty in America? Well, I think just given the number of states that have um, either abolished or repealed the death penalty and the moratoria, there are four states now who have moratoria that have moratoria on the death penalty. So I think certainly um, as people get more and more educated and um, understand more the risks of the death penalty, the, the incredible costs of the death penalty, you know, those evolving standards of decency that the court talked about, um, I think hopefully, I hope anyway, will eventually lead to an abolition um, of the death penalty in America. I'm not sure that will happen, uh, but, you know, and how do we, how do we judge those evolving standards of decency? What do we look to? You know, we look to our juries, we look to our legislatures. Um, so hopefully those systems will start to reflect the understanding that we have and as it develops even more about the problems with the death penalty um, so that will eventually lead to abolition. Um, now I have a few questions that kind of stem from your experience representing inmates on post-conviction appeals. Could you outline how appeal regarding punishment is argued and what the standard arguments are? Well, again, I can speak to how it, go, how it works in Florida because that was where I practiced, um, but generally I think it's pretty similar. Um, state to state, the states that do have the death penalty. So um, the way it happens is there's a trial and um, it's a bifurcated proceeding. So there's a guilt innocence phase first, and then there's a penalty phase second. Um, and so once someone is convicted of first degree murder, then there is a whole separate penalty phase. So it's, it's like, it's essentially another trial um, to determine the penalty and there's witness witnesses and evidence. I mean, just like the guilt innocence phase. Um, and both sides present their arguments as to why they should or should not get the death penalty. So the state puts on evidence to support their aggravators, and then the defense puts on whatever mitigation evidence they've been able to uncover. Um, so, and then if the person is sentenced to death, um, then there's a direct appeal, and that goes directly to the Florida Supreme Court. Um, and then if once the death sentence is affirmed, then it goes into collateral appeals, which is what I practiced. Um, so, and that was where we would raise issues like ineffective assistance of counsel, prosecutorial misconduct, juror misconduct, trial court error. Um, <clears throat> and so that would go through a whole state court proceeding, um, which was an evidentiary hearing, um, which is essentially like a bench trial. And then after that, it would go up to the Florida Supreme Court and then up to the U.S. Supreme Court on a cert petition and then once we would lose there, then we would start all over again in federal district court and go back through the whole uh, federal system. So it's a very, very lengthy, complicated process. In the cases that you were able to work on, how often did you feel a true injustice had been done? One that made you believe that a true injustice occurred. 
all of them. <laughs> I mean, I had three clients who were diagnosed with intellectual disability who are still on death row in Florida. And all of my clients suffered from mental health issues or, and or low intelligence. All were survivors of chronic abuse and trauma. Many of them were convicted based on testimony of jailhouse informants or eyewitnesses or false confessions or junk science like hair and evidence and bite mark evidence. So, um, yeah, I'd say pretty much all of them. How often was that due to judicial or prosecutorial error or was it more often that it was ineffective assistance to counsel at the trial level? I mean, it was it was all of those things. All of those things were certainly present. Um, most of what we did was ineffective assistance of counsel claims, um, but there was certainly a number of um, judicial error and prosecutorial misconduct claims as well. Brady claims, um, Brady Giglio claims. You know. What do you think about a heightened standard of proof in capital cases, such as proof beyond all possible doubt? Would imposing this higher standard resolve some of the concerns that you have at the trial level? I just, I don't think that that, standard is ever possible, would ever be possible, because there's always human error to consider, always. And so, um, like, even DNA is not infallible, right? Even though that's that's one of the things that we rely on the most nowadays to, to prove uh, someone's guilt or innocence, but even that is not infallible. So I, I just don't think that it's even possible to have that standard. That's why the law has the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, because you just can never get to that 100% certainty, um, certainly not with the guilt-innocence phase, I don't think. And, and then in terms of a penalty phase and making that decision whether the aggravators outweigh the mitigators, I just don't see how you could ever know that with 100% certainty because there's always things out there that you don't know about. Um, that was a lot of what I did was um, ineffective assistance for failure to present mitigating, mitigating evidence, for example. So, um, you know, we would go back years after the trial and find witnesses and evidence that, were ne that was never presented to the jury that heard the case in the first place. So I, I just don't think it's possible to ever get to that standard. So basically, at the end of the day, we're dealing with humans, and yeah. humans uh, have a susceptibility to error. Yes, Absolutely. What could prosecutors do to avoid wrongful convictions, especially when they're pursuing a case that has death consequence? This is kind of really more Professor Siegel's area of expertise. <laughs> he teaches the wrong, wrongful convictions class. Um, but certainly, so in 1935, in, this, uh, in a case called Berger versus United States, the Supreme Court wrote that the prosecution's ultimate goal is not that it shall win a case, but that justice shall be done. And the prosecutor is in a peculiar, in a very definite sense, the servant of the law, the twofold aim of which is that guilt shall not escape nor innocence suffer. But man, is that hard to do in actual practice. And um, one of the biggest problems in terms of wrongful convictions is that a lot of cases where prosecutors have made mistakes and it's been proven definitively that there were mistakes made then the prosecutors refuse to admit that error and, in fact, double down. Um, there's a whole phenomenon, you know, known as, there, some of them are known as innocence deniers, right? So that even when there is definitive proof that someone is innocent, 
some prosecutors refuse to admit that mistake and want to continue prosecuting them anyway. Um, so, you know, it's, it's difficult in that environment. I think, um, you know, prosecutors need to, I think, always come back to that understanding that the goal is not to win, but, um, you know, that they, and that the prosecutors are the most powerful people in the law. They're the ones who make the decision about who to prosecute and what penalties to seek. And so, um, you know, they, they really need to be conscious of that and admit when they're wrong. And I have one more question, and it might be kind of a big one, but are wrongful convictions inevitable, or could you imagine a system that would never uh, convict someone if they were factually innocent? It's an interesting question. I mean, um, I think probably for the same reason that I don't think that we could, um, you know, have a proof beyond all possible doubt. I think it's the same thing. It's the human error factor where I think that, yes, wrongful convictions will happen, but certainly there are things that the criminal justice system can do better to avoid those happening. Um, official misconduct and perjury or false accusations account for the majority of wrongful convictions, over 68%. Um, and then some of the other problems are, well, eyewitness identifications, I think we're all starting to recognize now, finally, that those are not as reliable as we had once thought that they were. Um, and same with false or misleading forensic evidence and false and fabricated con uh, confessions. So I think, again, is the more um, education and awareness that there is about these phenomenon and the more education there is among prosecutors and defense attorneys about how best to avoid um, these situations, then the better. Well, thank you very much for your time, <laughs> Professor Noel. Uh, again, Professor Noel is a visiting assistant professor of academic excellence at New England Law Boston. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, and stay tuned for the next episode of the New England Law Review podcast. Thank you.